media stories assuming global warming is taking place are everywhere. Scientists warn of catastrophe if global warming is not curbed. Environmentalists hope that pressure will increase on the leaders of the world's fastest growing economies to do more to combat climate change. Last night we reported the lack of snow that's frustrating skiers in the European Alps. Tonight, as Cliff Joyner reports, New Zealand ski field owners are also trying to cope with the impact of global warming. Not only the content, but also the tone suggests that a definite conclusion has been reached and no debate is now necessary. No longer any question that the Earth is warming, the warming is due to greenhouse gases, and that those gases are produced by us. I do wonder what it will take to convince somebody like yourself. I mean, will you have to be, I don't know, have your head submerged in water or, or I don't know, I mean, what would it take to convince you? My gosh, uh, nine of the hottest years on record over the course of the past ten years, it's hard to imagine that there should be any debate at all about uh, the science of what is occurring. But scratch the surface and there appears little consensus. Debate is intense. Almost every proposition made about man-made climate change can and is being challenged. In an attempt to balance the avalanche of reports which dominate the media, this programme explores some of the views put forward by opponents of the perceived wisdom. The perceived wisdom that says the world is experiencing unusual warming caused by human activity that the rate of warming is alarming, and the solution, a reduction of carbon dioxide emissions. The consensus view is underpinned by reports from the UN body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. Let's take a look now at the international weather picture. For the IPCC says warming over the last century is unequivocal, in its summary for policymakers, it puts the rise over the 100 years to 2005 at 0.74 degrees Celsius. This is slightly higher than the panel's 2001 report, which put it at 0.6 degrees. There is widespread professional agreement on this amount of warming. Agreement, but not consensus. In New Zealand, the vocal opponents of the perceived wisdom last year formed a group called the Climate Science Coalition, their aim to ensure balanced scientific opinion about climate change. The chair of its science committee is weather consultant Augie Auer. The evidence to date is that uh, globally over the past century or so, temperatures have raised about six-tenths of a degree Celsius around the planet. And I often liken that to saying, well, it's like walking from one room of your home into another. The Climate Science Coalition has around 58 members with a range of expertise. Advisor to the coalition, climatologist Krista Freitas from the University of Auckland, dislikes being called a climate sceptic. He stresses he is not sceptical about climate change due to natural variations, nor is he sceptical about the impact of human greenhouse gas emissions on global warming. But he says the amount of warming is very small. Over the last hundred odd years, the Earth has warmed by 0.6 of a degree roughly. That means it's warming at about 0.006 of a degree per year. That You can't even measure that. Overseas, a range of experts also challenges the IPCC's views. One of them is Richard Lindzen, who's an atmospheric physicist and a professor of meteorology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S. He frequently speaks out against the IPCC position that significant global warming is caused by humans, here before an audience of New Yorkers. The Earth is always warming or cooling, at least a few tenths of a degree, 
And we're talking about so far something on the order of six tenths of a degree centigrade. Changes in the global average temperature, as depicted by the IPCC, are based on temperature readings taken from surface weather stations. But Vincent Gray, who's an expert reviewer for the IPCC based in Wellington, has serious doubts about the accuracy of this system. This is the graph. He says there are three significant flaws. To begin with, he says the average maximum and minimum temperature is taken in a single day, which can produce different results to when a genuine average is taken. That is when the total readings for a day are added up and divided by the number of readings. These are the hourly temperatures. For the Mount Cook website in winter, the average hourly temperature was minus 3.5 degrees. The maximum minimum average, if you take the maximum and minimum, is minus 1.6 degrees. The bias is 1.9 degrees. Now we are being told that a difference of 0.7 degrees over this period is a disaster. You see, and yet. And individ- individual readings can be out by nearly two degrees. Second, he argues that the distribution of weather stations varies wildly and has also varied over time. The total number of stations was two hundred in the year eighteen fifty, was eight thousand in nineteen eighty, and is now two thousand five hundred. In other words, the number of weather stations in each box has varied highly, and they're all different. Third, the weather stations are often in unsuitable locations. Some years ago, the Australian Bureau of Meteorology published uh, uh, photographs of all its weather stations. You know, they withdrew them hastily. This is an example. Stuck up against a building. This is Bundaberg, you see, with a car by the side of it. I mean, how can that represent that, that climate? You see. Another who doubts the accuracy of the surface temperature readings is Tim Patterson, a professor of geology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Much of the surface data that's collected is from around urban areas or areas which have had significant land use change, and this data is contaminated. The IPCC's summary for policymakers says urban heat island effects are real but local and have a negligible influence. Dr. Patterson believes much more reliable data comes from NASA satellites. As does Vincent Gray, who says the satellite data is the only temperature measurement he can believe. It includes the region that's supposed to be influenced by greenhouse gases. You see, and this is the record they have produced. Now, I have put on this natural events. You can actually do them on this one as well. That have influenced the temperature over this period, which are identifiable. For example, there have been two important. Volcanic events, which have caused a fall in temperature, and then this rather mysterious event called the El Nino, which is a, a, a oscillation in the ocean, and there was a particularly prominent one in 1998. The satellite data shows that between 1979 and 1998, temperatures fluctuated. Between 1984 and 88, for instance, there is a distinct cooler period, while in 1998 temperatures shoot up. They drop back quickly and then show another warmer period. Over this period, which is relatively small on a geological scale, there has been a a, a warmish period since 1999, which has gone up and down twice. The major problem with this data is the period of measurement, Augie Hour. The only hiccup in this, of course, is that the data only became really reliable since about 1979. 
and uh, that suggests that certainly that's not a record long enough to establish whether there's a, a trend or not. The Climate Science Coalition says even if the surface temperatures are accurate, the 20th century changes reflect climatic recovery from the Little Ice Age and fall well within previous natural rates of temperature change. The IPCC says the warming temperatures can be seen in increases in air and ocean temperatures, widespread melting of snow and ice and a rising average sea level. Such observations have given rise to some alarming projections, not least the ones Al Gore presents in his Oscar-winning documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years, and the hottest of all was 2005. scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. This is Patagonia 75 years ago and the same glacier today. This is Mount Kilimanjaro 30 years ago and last year. Within the decade, there will be no more snows of Kilimanjaro. From Paramount Classics comes a film that has shocked audiences everywhere they've seen it. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. This is what would happen in Florida. Around Shanghai, home to 40 million people. The area around Calcutta, 60 million. Here's Manhattan. The World Trade Center Memorial would be underwater. Think of the impact of a couple hundred thousand refugees, and then imagine a hundred million. Al Gore has been praised as a visionary and lauded for raising public awareness about man-made climate change. He has also been accused of making errors, exaggerating and promoting alarm. Let's look at just a few of his statements. I put some of them to Ogiawa. First, the snows of Kilimanjaro. Are they disappearing? They have been doing so for way before the global warming problem uh, took place. I, th I think they go back about uh, oh, maybe even as far as 100 years to show that evidence of that. It's not something that just started in the last 10 or 15 years. We've had the 10 warmest years out of the last 14. Yes, they have been the 10 warmest, although here in New Zealand... You can look back into the uh, teens and early 1920s was a very warm period as well. Globally, though, what you say is right, but there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that's from man-made aerosol. Ah, the ice cap's melting, in particular the Arctic ice cap. It is a little bit, yes, but it's been warmer 30 years ago than it is now. So, you know, it doesn't really suggest that man-made warming in the last uh, few years has uh, triggered all this. The Antarctic, on the other hand, now is growing. The ice is thickening there. Are we in danger from rising sea levels which threaten to flood major parts of the world? Um, witnessed, uh, and uh, we'll be able to go to um, questions. Uh, Testifying before the U.S. House of Representatives, Tim Ball, a former climatology professor at the University of Winnipeg, described how fluctuations have affected ice and sea levels in the past. The illustration I have before you is, is a production from the Canadian Geological Survey, and it shows you the ice conditions just 22,000 years ago. And at that time, sea level was 500 feet lower than it is at present. So the idea about sea level changing uh, is nothing new. And what's significant about this 
is that all that ice melted in about 5,000 years. And this was long before there was human CO2 or anything else. Professor Richard Lindzen. And sea level has been increasing since the end of the last Ice Age glaciation, with the most rapid change increase about 12,000 years ago. In recent centuries, the rate has been relatively uniform, averaged over 10-year periods. Uh, it amounts to a couple of millimeters per year. And this is a residual of much larger positive and negative changes locally. Those changes are due to tectonics. And, and the risk, if you're worried about sea level change from these changes, is larger than it is from warming. The IPCC, in its summary for policymakers, says global average sea level rose at an average rate of 1.8 millimetres per year between 1961 to 2003. It says the rate was faster between 1993 and 2003. Owen McShane, the director of the Centre for Resource Management Studies based in Northland and a spokesperson for the Climate Science Coalition, says such averages are meaningless when applied to specific locations. Now, in reality, in many parts of the planet, the water is rising, in others it's falling. This is because of ocean currents and wind and so on, changes in these things. But the other one, of course, is tectonic plate movements. And New Zealand is on the edge of a plate, which is sliding up over the Pacific plate. So that if you're on the Bay of Plenty, the, the recent measurement stations we've put in there show that the tectonic plate is rising faster than the sea is rising, so that in fact the sea level is falling. He says Australian research around the Pacific island of Tuvalu has shown that rather than sinking from the effects of global warming, as frequently reported in the media, sea levels are actually falling. Much of the alarm for the future is based on the fear that the rate of warming is speeding up. This fear is based on what appears to be a rapid rise in global temperatures during the 1990s when compared with temperatures of the previous millennium, a graph that has come to be known as the hockey stick curve. Augie Auer explains. They've looked at temperatures over the last couple of millennia, going back to 1000 AD, and basically uh, up until about the last 50 or so years, temperatures on the planet were essentially flatlined, resembling the handle of a ice hockey stick. And in the last 50 years or so, we got to the business end of the ice hockey stick, and the temperatures have accelerated uh, rapidly upward. And hence, it uh, was given its name, and hence the warning came, oh my, look what we're doing to the atmosphere for a 1,000 or 1,500 years or even longer, 1,900 years. Nothing occurred, and then suddenly we have the shoot. The reconstruction featured prominently in the IPCC's 2001 report and has been widely published. Since then, its accuracy has been strongly questioned. Two Canadian statisticians, Stephen McIntyre and Ross McKittrick, did the initial work and concluded the hockey stick graph was deeply flawed. Stephen McIntyre. We recompiled the data and got quite different answers. Instead of having a extraordinarily high 20th century, we had a 15th century value that was just as high as the 20th century, so the hockey stick disappeared. The debate prompted the US Congress to request two re-evaluations of the work, one by a panel of scientists convened by the US National Academy of Sciences and the other by three statisticians chaired by Edward Wegman.
The NAS report says temperature records aren't accurate enough to be able to say with confidence that the late 20th century warmth is unprecedented for the last 1,000 years, but says the period is very likely the warmest for 400 years, a period with more reliable records. In roughly agreeing with the hockey stick graph, the report went on to criticise the prominence that the IPCC placed on it. The Wegman report went much further. Overall, our committee believes that man's assessments that the decade of the 1990s was the hottest decade of the millennium, and that 1998 was the hottest year of the millennium, cannot be supported by his analysis. Key statisticians in the U.S. found that the hockey stick profile was a result of manipulation of numbers. You could have taken random numbers. And put them into the process, and you generate the same kind of curve. And more severely, these three statisticians ridiculed the peer review system in the U.S. for being basically an old boys' system of peer review, because there was viewed that instead of someone speaking up and saying, "Hey, this isn't right." Or maybe we ought to question this, or maybe we ought to do it again.、Uh, they chose to stay with it. The hockey stick graph has now become the hockey stick controversy, and debate continues about its accuracy. It's the linking of the warming trend with projections of catastrophe that many of the so-called skeptics particularly query. They also question the connection between rising carbon dioxide levels and temperature. The IPCC says most of the observed warming since the mid-20th century is very likely due to increases in anthropogenic or man-made greenhouse gas concentrations. Christopher Freitas from Auckland University disagrees. Most of that warming occurred before the CO2 peaked in the atmosphere. That's prior to 1940. Then it was global cooling, 40 years of cooling from 1940 roughly to 1980. Now we've got another period of warming. It's been about 0.3 or 0.4 since 1979 to 1998, and since 1998, the last eight years, we've had it. Climate's gone stable again, in spite of increasing levels of greenhouse gases. Tim Patterson from Carleton University in Canada says, although CO2 can have a minor influence on global temperature, the effect is minimal and short-lived. In a speech, he outlined his view that the water cycle is what truly controls global temperatures. Water vapor comprises 99% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. CO2 is at best a minor contributor to global climate change. During most of the last 500 million years, CO2 levels have been much higher than today. The percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere above the Antarctic ice cap for the last 150,000 years has been measured in air bubbles enclosed in long ice cores. Over this interval, the variations have closely paralleled the temperature record. However, CO2 concentrations rose and peaked several hundred years after temperatures did. These results indicate that climate change drives CO2 changes, not the other way around. Tim Patterson says the error over carbon dioxide is one of the many flaws in the climate models. Many climate models incorrectly assume that CO2 is a major climate driver. This may partially explain why these models have consistently failed to reproduce past and present climate changes, and why the predictions of future climate changes are suspect. There's widespread criticism of the climate models used by the IPCC. 
Vincent Gray, an IPCC reviewer in Wellington, says much of the data put in is based on bad assumptions. One of the scenarios predicts that the GNP per head in Zimbabwe will be more than the United States in, in 2100. There's all sorts of things in these scenarios which are absolute rubbish. Augia says that climate is so complicated that models are even bad at predicting the weather a few days ahead and points to a recent forecast that Auckland's high for a particular day would be 24 degrees C. 24 hours later, the verified high for Auckland was 21 degrees. Three degrees off. Nobody probably noted. But we're just talking about a high temperature here and a computer model that was asked to give us an output just 24 hours ahead. Now think what, you know, the reliability is there, and people are going to tell me now that in 40, 50, 75 years, they know what the temperature is going to be, and they can tell what will happen to this country, and I just can't buy that. That's just rubbish. Despite the arguments, what about the suggestion that reducing pollution is a worthy goal in itself and reducing greenhouse gas emissions a means of achieving that, even if it might have little or no impact on temperatures? Owen McShane from the Centre for Resource Management Studies. We have to make a very clear distinction between air pollution, which is putting toxic materials into the atmosphere, and carbon dioxide. We are all built of carbon dioxide and it has all come from the atmosphere. It is the great fertilizer. When the carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere, plants take it out of the atmosphere, animals eat plants and we eat animals. So, you know, if we suddenly stopped putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, in other words, if that whole cycle was stopped, life on Earth would cease. Carbon dioxide is not a pollutant. Nonetheless, governments around the world, including New Zealand, have signed the Kyoto Protocol, tying them to efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and, in particular, carbon dioxide. Here, that focus has included the proposal of a so-called fart tax, aimed at reducing the production of the greenhouse gas methane from livestock. But the level of methane in the atmosphere is going down, not just locally, but globally too. Retired scientist Vincent Gray. See, this is the, the graph. You see, it's doing this, and it seems to be going down. Owen McShane says the decline means no one really understands what's going on, but even without any change, penalising New Zealand farmers didn't make sense. When you say to them, well, are there more or fewer ruminants in the world today than there were 200 years ago? They don't know. We don't have any evidence. After all, the 60 million cattle in America really just displaced about 60 million bison. But we notice the cattle and the sheep in New Zealand because mainly because there are so few people. Canada has the same number of cattle, but they just say, well, that's such a trivial number, it's unimportant. The real big numbers of cattle are in countries like India, and of course they're exempt. But more importantly, their cattle are poor genetic stock, eating very poor quality stock food, whereas our farmers have very high-quality genetic stock, eating very high-quality pastures. So a, a litre of milk or meat out of a New Zealand cow produces less methane than virtually any other cow on the planet. Now, if you reduce our production, guess what happens? People go and buy from less efficient producers, so the amount of methane goes up. Now, why would any government want to penalise our farmers with the end result that internationally 
methane emissions increase. The Kyoto Protocol is expected to cost economies billions of dollars. If the data the agreement is based on is still uncertain, why is it being done? The economists summed it up as saying, "Well, it was a policy which promised to spend a great deal of money, not fixing a problem which no one was sure existed in the first place." Bryce Wilkinson is the director of the economic consultancy firm Capital Economics in Wellington, and a member of the Climate Science Coalition. He believes New Zealand's decision to sign up to Kyoto was based on international relations and the desire to be seen as a good global citizen. These relations are aligned far more closely with Europe than Australia or the U.S., and Dr. Wilkinson says Europe saw Kyoto as a chance to trump its rival, America. My reading of this issue was that Europe sees itself as competing with the United States, saw it as an issue where the United States would be a big loser because the United States is is the big emitter out of that group, and so the way they were designing it would would impose. Very high costs on the states compared to themselves, which is why the states pulled out of it. Owen McShane says New Zealand's efforts to cut greenhouse emissions will have no effect on the situation worldwide. New Zealand is so small, we don't even figure in the computer models. We don't exist. So if we disappeared, the computer models wouldn't notice the difference, and nor would the planet. But we've always said, well, that we have to be a good citizen. Singapore didn't feel that way because they just kept saying they're an underdeveloped country, even though they're richer than us. So I think it's really done more to keep on the right side of the Europeans.、Um, but of course, as always, Europeans said thank you very much then. But as soon as we got an excuse, say, well, let's ban all your food because of food miles. Whatever the spur, the idea that global warming needs to be urgently addressed appears to have captured public opinion, and politicians of all persuasions are now jumping on the bandwagon in an effort to gain votes. But is the data that uncertain? How could a United Nations organization, the IPCC, a large group of eminent scientists, be wrong, or even uncertain? Christopher Atus from Auckland University was an expert reviewer of two of the IPCC rounds. He says the detailed scientific reports that the panel puts out are excellent. However, he says other parts are written by bureaucrats and politicians. Their summary for policymakers is a short document. Making generalisations that I, I think, and others do too, that are alarmist, and have damaged the credibility of the IPCC. It's, in fact, it's a summary for policymakers that gave birth to the concept of or notion of climate catastrophism. Critics of the IPCC also query the panel's composition, saying the claim that it's the world's top 2,000 or so scientists isn't true, rather that it includes a number of non-scientists, including reviewers and government representatives. What sort of consensus is this? The accuracy of surface temperature readings can be challenged. The impact of present warming disputed. The urgency of any problem hotly denied. The necessity of reducing emissions of carbon dioxide argued, and the role of the IPCC denigrated. There is also increasing research about the role of sunspot activity and, most recently, cosmic rays. Many who scorn the notion of a consensus about man-made global warming also point to stories which captured media headlines in the 1970s. They include Philip Stott from the University of London. Here he's speaking at a climate debate in New York. I want to quote from three newspapers: the Christian Science Monitor, warning: Earth's climate is changing faster than even experts expect. I really like that. 
Your own New York Times, a major cooling of the climate is widely inevitable. And Newsweek, back to consensus. Meteorologists are almost unanimous that catastrophic famines will result from global cooling. That was the 1970s, and there are many headlines. And what I would like to stress is, it was a stress on consensus, it was faster than expected, the evidence came from the oceans, from polar bears, it's always polar bears, <laughs> from the changing seasons, and it's always disaster. Whether you are convinced by the so-called sceptics or not, the evidence of a consensus is shaky at best.